Hi, and welcome back to At the Devil's Ball. I'm Samuel Numine, and with me, as always, is my co-host and the founder of the feast, Nathaniel Johnson. Baby, can you dig your He is a righteous, righteous man. So, yeah, we've got a great show, I think, today, because it's one of my... It's kind of tied for top spot alongside of it is my favorite King story and my favorite King miniseries. We're, of course, talking about 1994's The Stand, uh, broadcast May 8th through May 12th of 1994. And I don't know, what else do we need to really say about it? I think, I think this is like the roots for horror generation, horror, horror generation, really. Uh, yeah. I, you, you could compare it to roots, sure. Um... Uh, I think that would be kind of ridiculous. Oh, that's, that's why I like um, it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, in that, I mean, in that uh, it's, you know, so a gigantic miniseries and kind of a watershed moment for horror fans maybe of our age, you know. Definitely, not, definitely. Obviously not it's, the it's, cultural importance of Roots. <laughs> even, though, even though I would kind of argue that it's, um, it's scary as stuff. Obviously, we're going to – well, I think we're talking about just parts one and two. Yes. This is a two-part episode. Um, and we're probably going to run a little over uh, a little over our normal hour. On each, yeah. I think just because there's there's so much. To talk oh yeah, about. we could easily do an entire um, month of the stand and still have more I, to talk we could about. But we want to take yeah. pity on you guys. Right. We don't want you to have to listen to like seven hours of us talking about this one project. So, um, but yeah, I've got I've got some. All right, let's stats. go into um, it. Okay. Uh, so the book was originally obviously it was a book by Stephen King. Uh, everybody pretty much knows that, I'm sure, especially if you're listening to this podcast. Um, it was originally written in 1978, and uh, King's publishers basically told him, this book is way too long. It came in at, uh, I think, 1,152 1, pages. Um, and so they basically said that it would be way too expensive to uh, print, uh, not knowing what, if he would actually sell enough copies to make back the cost. Um, this was actually only his fourth novel. He had been successful pre- previously, but they were very regular-sized novels, so this was something huge for him. Um, so it, it was published in a, like an 800-page version in 1978. In 1990, the unabridged version was released, um, and that was back to its 1,152 pages. Where I think King uh, actually, I think all he really, he added back those pages, did another edit on it, and he changed all the references to make it 1990 right. rather than 1978. So I think I, I, I think at the beginning, like Fran, in, in the book, Fran's talking to her boyfriend, they're breaking up, and she like says like, oh, I'm going to go see like a Joni Mitchell concert right. or something in the original version. And then in the 1991, she's like the Thompson Twins. Um, and then they know, updated uh, that, that to type R.A.M. Thing. or... Yeah. REM in the, in the miniseries in 1997, yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so then the is made by Mick Garris, who had previously worked with King on Sleepwalkers before this. And this was, as you mentioned, like a big, kind of big watershed moment um, for horror fans. It's also a huge moment for Mick Garris. Oh, definitely. Where this is, this is absolutely, I think, to date still, the most ambitious project he ever yeah. did. Um, and uh, King wrote the teleplay for all four parts um other little things uh the music was done by snuffy walden uh well was it waldron anyway he uh was a kind of a blues musician so he does all that yep. twangy like down 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 i mean come on all you got to hear uh, is the first two chords of that and you know what you're watching yeah 
You know, you know the right. stand. Yeah, it's it's pretty iconic at this point. And then uh, Al Cooper and King himself wrote the uh, "Baby, Can You Dig Your Man" song. Uh, you know, right. tell me, baby, can you dig your man? Um, which is a pretty catchy little yeah. song. It, it doesn't say it doesn't say who actually sang it. And I still wonder if it was um, uh, Adam Stork th- who plays Larry. I want to say it is because I had it. you would have heard if somebody else sang it. So I, I feel like it probably was. Yeah, um, but and, and he does sing later. Right. He sings in like part part three, I think. Uh, he uh, is singing uh, "Eve of Destruction." It's a good cover of it. Um, yeah, and he's actually yeah. good. Yeah, um, but uh, and of course it stars. He stars a whole bunch of people. But I'll just do the first half for right. this one, and then when we do part two. I'll talk a little bit more about some of the others. But uh, stars Gary Sinise, Molly Ringwald, Rob Lowe, Adam Stork, uh, Bill Fabergaki. I think I've seen. I can never right. remember if I say his name right, but it's, yeah, he plays. He plays. He plays Tom yeah. Cullen. Um, uh, Nick Van Orton, I mm-hmm. think, is the name. Uh, Peter Van Norton, sorry, uh, and then uh, Cynthia Garris, right. Ray Walston as Glenn Bateman, and uh, and Rob Lowe. Who, I okay. mentioned him already, yeah. Uh, and Ruby D, of okay. course, uh, plays the titular, the uh, not titular, but uh, incredibly important character of Mother. And Ozzie Davis as uh, her husband as uh, Judge, as uh, Judge mm-hmm. Ferris. Yeah, that's his name. But anyway, uh, so yeah, that's and that's mostly all the good guys, and there's bad guys in it as well. And then we have, in just part one and two, we have some uncredited small roles from Ed Harris, Kathy Bates, and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar all pop up early on. Um, in, in fact, uh, the, the and of course the, the plot of the story, particularly in part one and two, is a superflu is built in a government lab, and it gets out and start wipes out 99.9% of the population, and that's basically part one. And then part two, the dreams, focuses on everybody having dreams about one of two entities. The uh, kindly old lady, Mother Abigail, who is uh, apparently a prophet for God, and the evil Randall Flagg, who wants people to come to Las Vegas and do some rather vague yeah. kick, evil kick stuff. Kick shit up. We're not sure how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of predicts <clears throat> in general, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I think that to get started on the conversation, I, I think the Spoonwee is actually very, very relevant today. Um, not only in just, I mean, in a, a bunch of different right. ways, but I think one, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Um, and uh, can't ignore that. In fact, I think when the when the pandemic started, it was like anybody who knew uh, <laughs> horror novels immediately was back to it's the right. stand. It's the stand. Well, that was like my um, first profile picture after the shutdown was uh, Larry sitting on the car yeah. singing "Eve of Destruction." Yeah, yeah, singing singing "Eve of Destruction." It's 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 it sounds glib, but I mean, you know, if you're a horror fan, that's just kind of the way you think about the world. Is like where where you can yeah. plug in this movie or that movie. <laughs> Well, it was so widespread yeah. that that conversation was so widespread that King himself went right. in on it. You know, like he went on Twitter and said, "Like, I, look, I get it, but the super flu killed like ninety nine point nine percent of everyone. Right. Like, this disease is not going to do that." Um, and then, of course, I think the, they went viral of a guy saying, "How would you? Know? <laughs> yeah. Have you even read? Have you even read the book?" And like everybody What's got twice, maybe collectively right. groaned, uh, and we're like, "Yeah, you don't know who he is, do you?" Um, the other one, and it's more prevalent, I think, in part three and four, but there's a political uh, allegory there 
right. um, about Trump's America, and of course that's <sighs> yeah, um, it was eerily prescient of a lot of things about Trump's America. In the first one, in the beginning, not so much. Although there is the uh, uh, army trying to like keep everybody right, and the government, you know, like, acted like they know what they're doing, but they really kind of don't. And well, they did. They did not. Yeah, and they're more they're interested like, in all, damage all control. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's funny, too, that um, this story, it's something I wrote down in my notes. There's no president mentioned. Right. Just the... Um, just this general. Right. Yeah, this general uh, played by Ed Harris, right. who keeps saying, like, you know, the super flu does not The exist. so-called super flu, so he won't even dignify the name, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, so-called super flu does not exist. And people are like, but what about all the people who are dying? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking right. about. Um, and so there's a little bit of prescience towards this administration's handling of COVID-19, you know, where initially, of course, at the beginning, he called it a hoax. Right. You know, he who should not be named, you know, the real, the real dark man, you know, like the, the Randall flag of Randall douchebag, we'll Um, call him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so he didn't handle that well. So there was a little bit of that. I think there's also, and we talked about this a little bit uh, while we were kind of preparing for this episode. That and again, I want to make sure because we're about positivity and we're about constructivism. So, I, in, in saying this, I am no way in calling for like any sort of anger or cancellation or anything of the creators of right. this. But this is a really, really fucking white right. series. Like this is white, this is all white, white and male. male yeah, because I mean, there's not really yeah. any outside of Mother Abigail who we can you know discuss. If she counts as a human character or not, um, right, there's no right. real there's no real strong female roles that you know in it that I think. No, Franz Franz roles to basically be pregnant right. and be Gary Sinise's love interest. In fact, I think the most powerful woman in the in the series, and she's given very little to mm-hmm. do, and then is blown up in a house. Right. Is um, is Mick Garris' oh, yeah, wife, yeah. Cynthia Garris, as as Susan Stern? Yeah, she's a bit of a shit kicker. See, in that, you know. Yeah, yeah, and we see that she's able to like take care of the power station right. and all that. But like, we're, 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 but we'll talk about that when we get to part three and the social social reconstruction. Right. But uh, I was counting, particularly in the first two parts, one and two, mm-hmm. including extras. We're talking, uh, I think, a total of eight or nine, right. not non-white people, and that's including extras. Um, that number does jump up exponentially in three and four. Like right. there are a lot more smaller roles. But um, it kind of actually really made me mad. And it's one of those things I think you only notice today. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, back, it was a, a different time in 97. It was certainly a different time in 78 right. when King wrote the book. Um, and so, was it in like, 94? 97 was the show. Uh, yes, 90, 90, 94. 94, okay. you're right. I, I apologize. Yes, 94 was when the miniseries came up. Um, yeah, I keep. I think I'm still like still thinking of The Shining. That was '97, um, but yeah, '94. And so it's one of those things I think that nobody nobody really thought about it. You know, there's just that continued. Right. It's sort of that artifact of you know systemic racism and television. Yeah, and like that nobody that you, nobody intended. you hire you hire black people or you know color people of color for for roles for those, and then everybody else gets the white roles. Uh, you know, right. even you know, television at the time, you know, you had sitcoms and then you had black sitcoms, you know, yeah. and they were super well, I mean, popular, the, but you know, it was, there was still kind of a divide, you know. Was was Friends on the air in '94? Because that was uh, like... Friends came out later that year. Uh, oh, it came out in the fall. Yeah, so like, 
So there's like, you know, there's like the right. whitest show. But I mean, like, you history. know, the Cosby show, Different World, you know, all that kind of mm. stuff. They were starting to have right, more right, right. representation. But I think, especially in a show like this that's cast a lot with stage actors and, you know, character actors from TV, there's just such yeah. a bigger pool to draw from at the time of, you know, white people. And I don't think anybody had it in mind, you know, that we need to have no more evenly uh, no, distributed the, cast. The, the com- the conversation of representation in media is really very much a right. modern one. Um, and so, but I mean, like, I just, I just thought, felt that this needed to be kind of called out being like, this is a very white male story that have made for and by white men. Right. And, uh, and again, uh, with their hearts, in, you know, in the right place, in the, in the yeah. right place. Yeah. There certainly was not intentional, but it just, it, I think it's something that bears, bears, uh, uh, yeah, because it's hard to watch it today and not notice it, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's very noticeable right. now, um, and uh, it's funny because I think I've watched this like so oh, many God, times, yeah. and this is sort of the first time I really noticed. I'm like, holy shit! Right, this is white. <laughs> wow, this is. You white. said it was uh, whiter than um, the CW, which I thought was pretty hilarious. Funny. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, it, make, it makes the CW look like PT. <laughs> yeah, like uh, you know, it's it's the TGIF right. show, uh, you know, CW, but. Um, and at least they have more yeah. women, um, but uh, but yeah, um, but yeah. I, I just wanted to call that out before we move on because obviously, the, and again, in in the most positive of manner, I just want to say that like you know that the idea that this is sort of if there's something to be said uh, about the importance of seeing mistakes that were made in the right. past, and uh, from what I understand, the new one that's coming out is already kind of taking care of that. Like they're they're having. Yeah. They've recast. They've recast what Larry Underwood. Yeah, it especially right? yes. Uh, he yeah. I can't remember who's playing him, but he's played by a, a black actor, which is you know awesome. Right. Uh, yeah. They give uh, the Rat King is going to be played by Fiona Dorif, so that's kind of cool. But oh wow. Um, mm. You know the Trash Can Man we think might be Marilyn Manson, but you know let's not. That's right. He doesn't. <laughs> yeah, he has a. That's right. He has a role in it that hasn't been. Right. Uh, but hasn't been. And, you know, especially with it being, you know, kind of like the Americana uh, Armageddon, it, it's kind of, yeah. and I get, you know, a lot of it's middle America and, you know, um, uh, New England, you know, based, but, yes. you know, there's, there's not a, there's not a lot of wide sampling of America in that, in that Americana. No, for, for something that is, that is unabashedly American. Right. And again, we'll, we'll I, I, that's something we want, I want to talk about when we get to part three as well. Right. Um, you know, this is a very American story. Um, and I think that's, that is by design. Yeah. Um, obviously like other countries I think are never mentioned, even in the no. book, the other countries aren't really mentioned. There's just like, it's cut from the miniseries, but isn't there like the, the Rome burns I, element where they they were going to nuke. I can't that remember. Anyway. There was, I thought, I, f- I feel like there was a thing where they were talking about like the, the Rome burns contingency, which was like, if America falls, I, they bomb it. Sounds about else, right. So no one else survives. Like I, I read um, the novel, you know, a bunch of times, but the novel and the miniseries are so wrapped together in my head because I devoured right. them so much and it's so much at the same time that it's hard to remember specifics from one or the other and not attribute yeah, it wrong. Yeah. Well, in the miniseries, uh, the miniseries is almost entirely the 800 page original right. version. Like, none of the uh, stuff from the unabridged version gets in to yeah, this miniseries. Yeah. And that's probably for the right. best. I actually I, I prefer. The 800. I don't think you can find it anymore. I don't know if I've ever read the short um, version. I mean, because... It was the first one I read when I was younger. Because uh, I read it in the stand middle was, school, and, you know, that, yeah. the longer version was already out. Now that, that was the one I, I bought. 
Um, yeah, I, I think I read the 800-page version first because my grandmother had picked mm-hmm. it up. Um, it's funny because my grandmother, like, hated horror. But she um, read The Stand. Apparently she decided to check out The Stand. I think my older cousin had been reading some Stephen King, right. and I think she checked it out to be, like, to see if, like, you know, to wag her finger or something, you know. And uh, and I think she ended up reading The Stand, and then that she was, like, from there on out, she was, like, a Stephen King fan because he was a Christian. Right. And uh, and so and she was like really really devout Christianity Methodist, and so she was like he's a Christian so he's okay to read right. now, um, but, which is uh, weird since he's got a lot of you know takes a lot of jabs at Christianity throughout his work. Um, yes, not necessarily yeah. this one, but uh, no no this one this one I think ultimately comes across as, as being a very right. Christian story, um, even to the point of like not making any sense. <laughs> yeah, like. Um, and we'll get right. to that too. Uh, that's all. That's all the stuff in the conclusion. Um, but yeah, to talk about uh, uh, part one and two. Uh, so we basically, of course, the story starts with a whole bunch of people in different places. Um, sort of Stu Redmond, the. Uh, uh, well, it starts even before that, that with I think one of the strongest openings of a King movie I can think of. Uh, that's true. You know, it starts yeah. with the lady hanging her laundry, you know, outside the outside the base, which is kind of the same shot from it, which is weird. <laughs> right. Very. And then you know, yeah, to that you just kind of see this little idyllic, suburban-looking town, and all of a sudden, just you know, that klaxon starts blaring, and people start freaking out, and yeah, you yeah. know, in a very American thing, the the underpaid, under educated, under trained guy running the gate just freaks out and runs out of there. Yeah, runs away. Uh, yeah, grabs his wife and kid. And, and, and in the miniseries, it's sort of implied. I think implied the flag kind of whispers to him. I I didn't really catch that, but it could be. No, I mean, the 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 crow shows yeah, up, like right after. You know, I thought he was just kind of watching his his game start to play, but you could be right there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. That's one of the things I think I've noticed about this particular miniseries versus this miniseries versus I think the original source material right. is that there's a lot more I think blamed on. Flag. Yeah. Um, that, that flag is sort of a cause of this, like, you know, maybe flag kind of set this all in motion. Right. Um, which in the book, if memory serves, doesn't he, he doesn't even realize who he is. No, until about part of the way the through novel. it. Yeah. He's, he's yeah, kind of an amnesiac like, at the beginning. Like he doesn't yeah. know what's up. And then he suddenly he's like, oh, I have magic powers right. now and I can do stuff. Yeah. yeah they kind of give, uh, in this, in this version, he just kind of just is there. And then the other one, he kind of finds himself throughout the course of the maybe yeah. first act of the novel. Yeah. But that opening with, like, but, Don't Fear the Reaper and just watching everybody yeah, dead the right in the middle yeah. of, like, playing table tennis or, you know, serving, yeah, serving yeah, broccoli yeah. and cheese or what a goddamn great opening that is. It's a yeah. very great opening, very great opening. And they talk about in the commentary they had to fight for some of right. that, too. Uh, ABC had no no dead people with Yeah, that, that picture of that girl yeah. at her desk, you know, that the, the title comes over, wow, yeah. that's that's chilling stuff, especially for TV Yeah, at the time. it's really, really yep. chilling. yeah. Um, but yeah, so yes, that's a very good opening. Um, but our, our sort of lichpin character, the guy who represents the, the audience is sort of right. Stu Redman, played by Gary Sinise, who was actually something of an unknown at the yeah, time. Yeah, this was the same year he did Forrest Gump, but this came out first, so it was like a big, yeah. big year for him. Yeah. He had re- previously done, um, Of Mice and Right, Men, yeah, with... And that was a, that was a, a big deal, I think he... And uh, Ray Walston was in that awards. with him. Yeah. Yeah, and Ray Walston's awesome in this. Glenn Bateman, I think, is without a doubt my favorite. Absolutely, character. but 
Um, and we'll talk about him a little bit later. Um, but Stu has, I think, I think there's a, an argument to be made, particularly mm-hmm. in part one and part two, and I know the book is similar, where everybody seems to have one of two answers to what the scariest part right. of part one, part two is, uh, or maybe in general the entire thing. And uh, I, I, and the argument seems to be between Stu and the Center for, Center for Disease Control. Right. Because he's, he's, he finds Campion with his buddies at Hap's gas station, and the government comes and grabs him and all of his neighbors, right. and they whisk him off. To, yeah, Alf's uh, dad comes and steals him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Alf's dad, exactly. Really? <laughs> um, but uh, I... Uh, that, that's a joke the for the older one, fans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you know what Alf is, bro. You know. Take an ibuprofen um, before you go to bed if you don't know who Alf is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're back probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, the uh, uh, the uh, then that scene is usually talked about as being one of the scariest parts, and it, to my my mind it oh, is. Yeah. I think that what what Stu goes through is the scariest thing probably in his entire movie. Yeah, especially since you know um, he's he's caged and has you know absolutely no control, and none. You know they they set him up as our as our lead character and you know our identification character really well and really fast at the beginning because otherwise that wouldn't work so well. You know, right. he's a lab rat. They basically say yeah. it a couple times to his face. You're a lab rat. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. They, that's bring in, they bring in the guinea right. pig. Yeah. They bring in the guinea pig, Geraldo, right. and they're like, you know, he's been breathing the same air and, as you and he's And, fine. you know, like the way they play off, um, I can't remember the other doctor's name, but uh, played by the guy who played Bub from Day of the Dead, uh, Howard mm. Sherman. Um, right. They set him up fast as a really strong antagonist, you know. Yes. They kind of skip a little bit of explaining like why he's such a bad guy, but you can yeah. kind of infer that you know he he sees people as as lab rats and he sees this guy as subhuman and he gets angrier and angrier as everybody around him, including himself, gets sick and dies. While this redneck from Podunk, you know, Texas, yeah. is surviving. Although he has my my one of my favorite lines I think in in this entire thing is they uh, Stu's coming out of his house. He's got his like his lunch right. pail. And the Marines show up, put the guns on him, and they're like, if he resists, he's I ain't gonna resist. Right. Country don't mean yeah. dumb. Yeah. And I'm like, and I thought it was a perfect, uh, just oh, a perfect was a great moment line. for this character. It really sets up who he is, where he's like, look, I'm actually, you know, you might think that I'm some dumb. Yeah. And there's a lot of a lot there's a lot of levels to the way that uh, he plays him, um, even right from the jump. Like you said, you know, yeah, he's, he plays him as kind of a redneck kind of character. But he's he's you can tell right away he's got a good heart. Um, you know he's he's quick to anger but not quick to strike. Um, right. You know so he's just he's painted out so well in in maybe what maybe five ten minutes of screen time at yeah. most. What was it? Yeah, even at the very beginning. I mean, like what the first things I remember writing it down mm-hmm. when I was taking notes. Um, that like a key defining element. Like we learned so much about Stu just in that first scene. Just at at half right, gas yeah. station. Wait, he's not even talking. Right. The other guys are talking. They're doing. They're like, you know, like, ah, and he's just holding that guy in the rain while he you dies, know? and it's just yeah. Well, that's what I mean is that's the thing is he's not. He's just listening and he's enjoying the right. conversation, but he's not jumping in. He's a spectator. Right. He sees the car coming and he tells Hap turn off the right. pumps. Hap doesn't react. Stu leaps over, right. turns off the pumps just in time, yeah. and then he's the first one out there when Campion falls out of the car. Right. And and holds him, doesn't think twice right. about it. And this guy's you know, just nasty looking, guy. you know. Everybody, anybody yeah, would be like, oh, I'm not touching sick. that guy. But he's just like, you know, 
In fact, I think Haplick puts it, pulls out his, his uh, handkerchief his, and starts uh, wiping him up. Handkerchief yeah. like covers his face. Yeah, he's like, I don't want to get what this guy has, but Stu's like, whatever, right. man, this guy's dying. Um, so we get that that idea of Stu is responsible. Right. He's quick witted. Um, he's good in a crisis, right. and he um, and he's not selfish at he, all. I mean, really, and not selfish right. at all. No, he's a very, very, uh, very, very selfless. Right. If you were gonna, if you so were gonna, you know, can... tell me to sit in a room and you got ten minutes to come up with, you know, a a very American character that's entirely positive, I'd probably sketch out, you know, something close to to what ended up as Stu Redman. Yeah, and played with played with such dignity right. and uh, and intelligence yeah. by Gary Sinise. Like it's absolutely, uh, it's probably the best performance of this entire right. miniseries. It's the it's the um, performance of his that I always think of when I think of him, and that's where I you know right. got a huge you know right. boner for for his acting. You know, was to see him in this. Yeah, right. You know, everybody right. else is Forrest Gump. I didn't care for that movie, but you know, he was great in it. But this is what yeah. I think of when I think of him. Definitely, definitely. Um, and I bet that's probably true of a lot oh, yeah, of horror fans. Is that like if you, if you say Gary right. Sinise, they think of Stu Redman, yeah. um, and it's a very signature role for him. Um, but yeah, so we have this idea of the end of the world, right. um, and uh, there's a lot going on there too that I think King is is directly inferring. Like there's a little bit of that. There's, and the thing is, I think one of the things that works about this why it's so I think timeless is it pulls together all these different sort of subgenres of apocalypse. Right. You know, there's a little bit of zombie apocalypse in this. You know, we got sick people acting really fucking yeah, weird yeah. and like crazy and de- deranged. You got uh, the natural disaster movie. Right. Uh, you got the the collapsed civilization. We right. see riot scenes. We see people. And it's each it's other. one of the few Armageddon movies that don't skip over that section. You know. Yeah. Because it's expensive to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we watch. Yeah, we watch society right. crumble all around these characters. Um, and there's a, and there's a lot of power to that. I, I remember there's a it's a, a, a random throwaway of uh, during one of the riot scenes. Uh, Mick pulls the camera down to uh, an older woman holding. Oh her god, husband. that was so sad. Yeah, and she she's looking up at the sky right. and like crying, and it's like and it's just like you can tell this guy didn't die from the right. flu. You know, uh, someone. Yeah, shot and him. then they go, they go right um, from that to that guy walking down the street just shooting people randomly. You know. Yeah, with his, with his with his tie wrapped around <laughs> right. his head like a like a bandana. Like he's, he's like, gone I am the Rambo. banker of the apocalypse. Fear me. Yeah. And we see people, you know, people overturning yeah. cop cars and uh, and smashing windows and stealing TVs. Right. Like that's gonna matter. I um, mean, you said like a lot of this is relevant today, especially especially mm-hmm. relevant today. But, you know, a lot of the stuff that he does in this, you know, King does in this, and, you know, the dead zone is kind of the same way. I think he taps into, like, you know, the subconscious of America's psyche in a way that's kind of evergreen. You know, it always, yeah. you can always apply it to what's going on today, depend, you know, in a certain way. Yeah. And the way yeah. that people react to, to this super flu is, you know, not a lot of places had done something like that, you know, at the time. So I think he was one of the first to set out, you know, like, this is how people would get, you know? Right. You know, right. that and, like, Dawn of the and Dead. I yeah, I, yeah, and I don't think he's right. wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a pretty grim uh, view of human nature here. In, particularly in the first half, especially, nature, yeah. In the first right. half in particular. Um, yeah, then, of course, we, we get into the later stuff, and it's sort of, we've now even divided out, yeah. everybody left into good and bad, roughly right. speaking. Um, and again, we're going to talk about that because the good ain't that right. good. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, you have all of these ideas 
And I think that's part of that, maybe why it plays into into sort of the white male fantasy. It's a much long, longer thesis that I would like to do more when we talk about like zombie right. films. But I always have this theory, and it's an essay I want to write someday about the apocalypse fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's a very white male fantasy. Yeah. Uh, the idea of when you and one of the reasons why Night of the Living maybe Dead not even maybe even, so not well. even you know specifically you know white male fantasy, but it's a very privileged fantasy. You yes. know. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, the, the idea that that when when push comes to shove and the apocalypse happens, you're gonna be the hero right. of the story. You're gonna take care of it. When you look at a story like like The Stand and realize you're probably right. dead. Like I remember at the beginning, and I don't want to tie it to like COVID all the time, but you know, at the beginning of all this stuff, right, right. I had some friends that I knew that were saying, "Well, good, you know, we need a good plague, or you know, this, that, and the other." It's like mm. you don't seem to understand that whenever this shit happens, it's not the people at the top who take the hit. It's no. always the little no. guy. It's always yeah. the, the, the least of us, the people that are in danger already. And yeah. from where they draw these characters, especially in the first half, outside of maybe Franny, because she's kind of sheltered a little bit, um, yeah, they're yeah. all, you know, kind of the everyman. They're all kind of the little guy. You know, there's there's nobody who's like, you know, oh, I'm I'm yeah. the head of Citicorp or Globochem. You know, it's, right, it's right, right, Stu right. Redneck guy from Texas. It's, you know, the deaf yeah. mute. It's the uh, yeah. the mentally challenged fellow. It's, you know, it's it's the least of us that, let's say, God is picking to, to survive this thing. That, you know, yeah. the powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that that's an interesting element, too, of the, 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 the choice. And we'll move on to that because I definitely have that written down. Um like God picking right. who lives and who dies here, but um, but yeah, you're right. But I mean, the, but the idea behind this, the apocalypse fantasy, is like you're going to be the hero, right. and one of the reasons why I think like Night of the Living Dead in particular works so well is because it challenges that to be like the black guy's the right. hero, and um, and the and, guy, and the, so the, me, the like, loud uh, and you know white guy that would normally be the lead is is the asshole of the film. You know, even yes. yeah, even yeah. if he was right, the cellar is the safest place. He was a dick right, about right. it. <laughs> He's a good yeah. dick about it, but that's what I mean. Is the, the stand is, and to your point, like that's the idea, like that you ultimately, uh, and 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 that's sort of what I was like, kind of talking about was the idea of like your dad, right? In this fantasy, oh my god, yeah. Like, there's once, you know, yeah, you and I are not once alive my once stand. my sleep pills and my depression pills run out, I'm I'm screwed, man. <laughs> it's yeah, right. But I mean, like, I mean, I, I mean, just in general, ninety nine point nine percent. The math, the math is right, your dad, right? We're not alive, yep. you know. We're not. I mean, again, you're talking about, I guess, you know, unless God decided to choose right. you. But and it's something that's only touched upon in the plague elements of this particular film uh, miniseries, of like everybody you know is right. dead, even if you're alive. Everyone else yeah. is dead. Like mathematically speaking, if the stand, if if super flu hit tomorrow, uh, maybe there's that like one in a million right. shot that. You're alive, or I'm alive, right. but not both. Yeah, like you know, you know, they, like, they, New York is a big part of that, and you know, we only see like you yeah. know two people from New York who who lived through it. Um, yeah, you know, Fran and Harold both lived, but I think there was a little more of divine providence at play to keep both of them alive in that small town. But statistically right. speaking, a, you know, it should be nobody from that town or one person at most. You know, well, Harold Harold points right. that out. In a scene where he says, like, the, the, uh, the odds of two people oh, that from scene. the same place. Oh, that scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do not like that scene. No. no it's I, I don't like Harold Lauder. And every time I read read no. the read the book or, or watch the movie, I hate him a little bit more than I did the time before. 
Um, yeah. I think when I first read it as a kid, I kind of identified a little bit with him because I'm like, this is the geeky, smart kid. And, um, you know, as right. I'm reading, I'm like, oh, this guy is the worst. And yes. and now yeah. nowadays, you know, going back to the way we um, see things differently these days, I mean, he's an incel. Guys, he's, he's absolutely an incel. An incel. <laughs> yeah. He's the first. He's yeah. the first. They didn't have a word for yeah. it at the time, but King knew what it was yeah. when he saw it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, and yeah. And he's, he's, the first he's, time I saw that scene where um, after Fran, he helps Franny bury uh, Bob Kelso, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I can't, I can't, I can't not see it now too. Every time I watch yeah. this, I'm like, oh, it's Bob Kelso. Talk about rage on that guy because that guy was, you know, the yeah, sweetest man on earth in in this, and you know, just plays the sweetest man on I, earth. Also, the biggest bad guy on earth. I'd scrubs from time to time, right? I think I, I do think that if, if there's any character in uh, particularly in part one that dies from the flu right the, that I care it's about him. the most sympathetic is yeah him. yeah like we, we, he's obviously set up as to being like the nicest sweetest right. man ever to exist but yeah uh, and uh, so but, we kind of I think we are affected by his very death. much and then um, yeah. then they have that scene where you know they drink warm lemonade and listen to uh, 80s music before it was considered yeah. retro. Um, yeah. When I first saw that scene, I'm like, "Oh, this is a very sweet and romantic scene, you know, between these two. But nowadays, when I watch, it, I'm like, "He's trying to slide up on her. That is gross." <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, he has that awkward moment. I mean, she obviously goes to him for right. comfort, and he has that moment of of like, "Should I? What should I do right. with this?" And he like, I think he strokes her hair. Yeah, but you can see, you can see in his performance, you know, that he's like, he's like thinking, should I push this? You know, should I? And that, right. that right there tells you all you need to know about that character because he's he's still not thinking of her as this, you know, Franny who's going through a very difficult time. He's thinking right. of Franny. I've been wanting to be with her since I was nine. Last man on right. earth. Yeah, and that's just gross. <laughs> it's. It is. It's, very it's dehumanizing it's very towards gross. her, and I think, like I said, I think that's on purpose, and I think that shows everything you need oh, to know absolutely. about his character going forward. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I I feel like I remember in the at least in the movie I was going to save Harold Lauder for part two, but I guess we're talking about well, it. Um, I, feel, I seem to remember in the book though he actually had a little bit more sympathy early on. Yeah, a little bit. Like, um, and and there was the idea that Harold Lauder is a tragedy right. more than more than just a dick. In this, he's played um, that, more closely to just being a dick. Yeah, but yeah, he's he's pretty much yeah. I mean, yeah, when he portrays everybody in part three, no one's surprised. Right. You know, it's not it's not a shock to the viewer. Like, how right. what Harold's a bad guy? Like, he's obviously been an asshole the whole fucking time. Well, um, but I feel like in the book, it's like he was he's overweight. Yeah. in the book. He's pimply faced. Um, they did the pimples at yeah, first and, and cleared it up a little bit later, but you know, yeah. obviously. Well, that's the idea. Is that supposedly while during the journey to to Boulder. Mm-hmm. Loses like 45, 40, 50 pounds. Right. He's actually like grows two inches. Yeah, his like he's actually puberty kicked like in. A little bit of a handsome right. guy, and uh, and there's that tragedy of if only he had just gotten over it. Right, moved you past know, his never, damage. You know, yeah, could never get over being bullied. He could never get over being rejected by right. Fran. Um, and uh, but I mean, in this, and we'll talk again. We're going to talk about the about. Uh, social reconstruction right. in Boulder. I keep, yeah. I keep referencing. Oh, yeah, there's a lot I want to I'm, ho- I'm, 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 I'm holding yeah. on to it. I'm holding on to it because part two, it's going to be like 40 fucking minutes. Right. Uh, but um, I think he actually has something of a valid, uh, valid complaint. Oh, definitely. 
of, of uh, being left off the list, right. uh, particularly in the book, because if memory serves, he's doing a whole bunch of really, really smart stuff in yeah. the book. Like there's a, they, I, I, it's been forever since I've read the damn thing, but uh, isn't there a whole thing that Larry ends up following Larry's group following Stu's yeah. group and he's like Harold La- Harold Louder's a fucking genius right. I can't wait to meet this yeah. guy and then he meets Harold Louder and he finds out he's sort of like this maladjusted asshole right. and, and Larry's like disappointed and that's another thing going back to the the apocalypse fantasies is like you know if, if you're not a physically fit guy or you know a particularly you know uh, athletic person you can always go well I'm pretty right. smart I can help you guys you know get clean water and right look how much it helps Harold um, it helped yeah. the people around him for right. sure and then it harmed the people around yeah. him because you know we'll talk about that later but right right you know it, it just, even that's not going to necessarily save you if 99% of the well, I mean, population I, is gone I I feel like and I feel like that's that you hit the nail on the head where you were like I hate that character right. uh, and it's and I think part of the reason why you hate that character why I hate that character is it is right. us well that's what I said the first time when, I read it when we were when we were 17 well, we or when I was like twelve louder. or thirteen when I first read it, you know, it's, yeah. that's that's I identified with them at first, and then the further I get away from that point, you know, the further I realize how much of a little bastard I was at the time, and yeah, how much yeah, I hate myself yeah. for it, and I hate him more for yeah. it every time because of that, you know. Yeah, I, I watch this now, and I'm thinking about like the girl that I had a. a you know, one of my best friends in high school, right. I was totally in love with. Right. And I was like, shit, I did shit like that. Yeah. Like, my God, what an asshole I was. What right. the fuck was I thinking? Because I was, I was Harold yeah. Lauder. I was like, I, I, you know, I couldn't get that chip off my right. shoulder when I was seven. Yeah, and I was just you know, mad at the I, world you know, for what the world had done to me, but, you know, never took responsibility right, right. for it, you know. I, I hate, you know, I hate that all these other guys are better looking right. than me, and the, the girl I'm in love with won't love me right. back, and why won't she love me back? I'm obviously, yeah. you know, will be better, be the best man for her, and we still, of course, we still see that today, right. except the incel thing. And that's the thing you with know, incels, like, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I was ever an incel or you were ever an incel, but you know, the part of the male psyche, oh, pretty. I think there's a part of the male psyche that has a little bit of that in there, you know, and that's why it took yeah. on, you know, it's just, you know, you, you, you get these kind of moments of rage or, you know, feeling like you're owed something you're not or whatever. Right. Right. And you know, it's, it's, it's hard stuff to deal with in yourself and it's hard stuff to watch somebody else do, you know? Yeah. And that's, I mean, and again, I mean, I would like to think that, you know, we've improved, right. you know, I mean, obviously you're married. Right. I'm, I'm ostensibly right. married by all, by, by any, by, we've improved know, and we less. try to improve, you know? Right. Right. And it's, 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 the thing is now that we can, we can see that behavior and then you realize how many guys out there aren't getting that. behavior. Right. And I think it's only so fair I, that, you know, when we call out the, the failings of, you know, say media or the way things are written or characters that are written in a certain way, that I think mm-hmm. we should, you know, be able to, to to notice that in ourselves, the part of ourselves that are in that, you know, as well. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, yeah, and 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 I think that's that's Harold's value. I think is to challenge us to be like is, and like I said, that apocalypse fantasy. And he's challenging King is challenging himself in that because he makes him. He's the Stephen King character, really. Yeah, he really and he is. talks about yeah. him as being, you know, a, a shitty writer that probably writes in the second person, you know, <laughs> in the book. Right, right. And I'm like, oh, you yeah. just burned yourself so good, King. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. I think he talks about that on the commentary, too. He talks about how like, yeah. he had uh, written a shitty poem when he was right. 17 that got published in a magazine. <clears throat> and that's that's yeah. what makes, I think, King an exceptional writer is, you know, not necessarily his prose or anything like that, is his ability to, to see people and to, to see mm-hmm. human nature and even recognize, you know, that in himself. And I think that's why a lot of his work has remained important. Yeah. Outside of the straight Definitely. awesome horror stuff that he does, you know? Right, right, right. And uh, to the stand is interesting, I think, because it's I don't even know if it necessarily completely qualifies as actually a horror story. It's it's right, there are horror right. elements, particularly in part one. I said part one sort of a horror yeah. movie, uh, and then the rest of it's sort of like this uh, drama, right. like uh, socio political. Right. And even he said, you know, that he was inspired by Lord of the Rings. You know, that's just not exactly a horror movie. You know. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, and there's it's, it's By a very the way, you know the two the two times Stephen King's you know really tried to make his own mark in fantasy, he does something completely different than what you think of you know the Tolkien fantasy stuff. He does this, and he does like you know the gunslinger stuff, the Dark Tower stuff. Yeah, and, man, Eyes of the and, Dragon. Yeah, I was on the, like that one too. Um, but like they, he he knows to take it so far away from like the standard you know D and D RPG kind of stuff make it his oh, own yeah. and yeah. you know not a lot of people really recognize this as you know it's a it's a fantasy novel it's there is a fantasy know. element to it absolutely there's yeah there's the quest they have to walk you know, into Mordor uh, at the end come on guys you have to walk into Mordor yeah. in the end yeah 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 you're right um see so yeah, I guess that's a, as good as a, a, a transition anyway to talk about the dreams right. in general and the choice of, the, of God uh, my question to you is this, mm-hmm. Sam. Do you think the survivors actually have a choice of where they're going? Yes. You think so? I, I think I, absolutely. I, all we see... In, in the way that if you live in a, a, a worldview where you accept, you know, the, the Christian God and how he's omnipotent and whatever. Sure. Um, if, if you can accept that you yourself have free choice in the real world, which mm-hmm. I, I I'm I'm an atheist, but you know I, I like Christianity some of it. Um, sure. I, hum, humans have free choice. God has set up that his humans have free choice, even if he knows where everything mm-hmm. is going to land. Maybe. Um, right. It's there's still free choice involved because you see, some of them struggle with the dreams and the choice. Um, so I think, yeah. I don't think so. See, that's, that's, that's my argument. That's my counter-argument, mm-hmm. is that I think that all we see, first of all, we don't see what the bad guys are dreaming. Right. We never see any of their dreams. We don't see what the trash man, trash can man dreams. We don't see what Nadine, Henry dreams. You, you get some Nadine. You get some yeah. Nadine, but she's like the chosen right, right. bride. You know, like she's, she's, uh, uh, you know, that's, she's. Okay, well, let me, let me there's ask no you choice. this. There's no let choice me ask you there. This. Um, do you think that the people who followed Flag had a choice? Well, that's what I'm okay. talking about. Is that we see, we see our good right. guys. We see what they dream, right. and it's it's like, come see me in Nebraska. Right. Come see me in Colorado, right. and then the the images of flag are negative. Right, they're they're yeah. evil. He's scary. Right. Basically, meaning well, obviously you're not going to choose flag. Uh, but you know, if you're Nick Andros and you're dreaming about the old black outs- lady who's like, and you can but hear, outside of Nadine, yeah. we don't really hear about um, any of Flag's followers' dreams. 
And hers right. could be the exception because, you know, she's the one who's like, you know, oh, I'm going to you know put the Antichrist in your belly, <laughs> you know, basically. Right. Um, you right. don't hear the other people. And I wonder if I wonder if the others didn't have those same kind of scary dreams, because why would you why would you run towards that? Well, that's what I mean. That's right. my point. We don't see their dreams, but one would have to assume, based on the sampling we have of the good guys' dreams, that they're having positive dreams about right. Flag. That's what I'm thinking. And so I'm like, so because basically, that because choice he's, is, you know, is his public persona is is you know a very you know upbeat you know just kind of down to earth guy who wants to get the trains rolling again, you know. Right, but that's what I mean. Is I don't think there's really a choice there. I feel like you're 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 predisposed to have dreams about Mother well, Abigail, or you're predisposed to have dreams about Flag. I don't think you're getting a call. I mean, I guess the only choice you really could make is whether or not you want to go or not. Right. And well, that's and, that's um, that's where the crux of the choice is. I mean, you're not gonna, yeah, they don't even have a choice whether they're going to get the dreams or not. But you could ignore yeah. them. Um, I, I think suppose. a lot of them, you know, follow fell upon. Especially in the miniseries, it felt like some of them just fell upon. Well, let's just go here because where else are we going to go? Right. And like this is the only glimmer of hope we see that maybe this is real. Um, right. I think that's why a lot of them, you know, chose to follow it. But I think even if they hadn't had the dreams, per chance, mm-hmm. or even if they hadn't decided that they had no better option, they would have probably mm-hmm. ended up going there because of just you know the way they were rolling. I right. mean, it's a really deep ontological discussion as to where where your heart stops and your head starts right um, right right i but i think yeah i think they could have denied the call um i don't think any of these characters would have but no no i mean i, and I, I imagine and it, that there were some people in las vegas who said you know screw this woman and hemingford home i'm not following so. nobody mm. Yeah, maybe they didn't but, have but, the but dreams themselves, but maybe they heard about it from other people because you know. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing to necessarily suggest that they actually even had right. dreams. It could just be only the people. But that's again where where I'm talking about like, is that that choice needs to already be made? Right. It's not like you're getting you're you're not getting an equal. That dream is not giving you an equal opportunity. Right. You know, it's not like well, there's Mother Abigail and there's this guy, and you can make a choice on what side of that want to be right. on no there's like there's the positive mother abigail and then scary ass flag right. but but, uh, but flag, so obviously if you're having that dream but flag has given them the scary dreams to scare them away from mother abigail not to scare them towards him because he knows that they're not his kind of people well is he but is he actually appearing in these dreams himself because mother abigail says that she doesn't know she, she knows they're having the dreams but she's not actually participating in the i dreams. would say that since um Flag appears in one of Mother Abigail's dreams in the same, and it's filmed the same way. That I would count that as a yes. Hmm. Um, your your blood is in my hands, Mother. Um, right, right. So it's it's shot exactly the same way in the same location. You know, the same lighting. I would say that I'd give it a ninety five percent chance that that is Flag giving them the scary dreams, um, okay. trying to psych them out, trying to tell them don't follow this woman; it'll get you killed. But not trying to win them over to his side because, like I said, I don't think they would fit in there. Right. Do you think he doesn't want them? I think he wants them out of the picture. Because uh, they're the – especially like Stu and Glenn um, more than anyone else really at, at that point in the story. Um, mm. They're not going to follow Flag. They're not no. going to listen to the shit he's saying. They're not going to buy the shit he's saying. 
No. So no. if they even went to Las Vegas, they would be a hindrance that needed to be taken care of. So he's trying to let the, tell them to go in a different direction and die off in the desert somewhere. Right, right. Okay. I guess I'll buy that. I mean, I, I still I still am under the uh, the feeling it's a, it's something that, again, when we get to part right. three of, of – and uh, that – I'm. I, I just feel like when I'm watching this, particularly this last time, my reading is that there's not a lot of choices actually happening, um, and that a lot of people are being steamrolled in a direction. And um, yeah, it, I can see that. Um, are yeah. you saying that's that's steamrolled by the the plot, the the plot rolling along, or are you saying that's steamrolled by God into you know doing God? Okay. Yeah, like yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, I quite agree. I, mean, I feel like. I'm not no? sure. Yeah. See, I just feel like there's a lot of predestination happening in this story to me, and and just that like God is like, okay, well, I've chosen these people to survive. Right. Okay, here's where they're gonna go. Okay, little off topic, <clears throat> but hmm. maybe this will help me figure out your your point of view and mine yours. Um, how how do you view God? Is he is he the guy that that plays the game, or is he the guy that puts the pieces on the board? See, well, okay, my, my view of God is. Uh, is neither. Okay. Uh, I think uh, I'm an agnostic, right. and um, I, I I accept the possibility. Mm-hmm. I think it's a nice thing to think about. It would be nice if when I die, I end up in a paradise right. and I'm reunited with loved ones. Yeah, that'd be that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's a great mm-hmm. idea. Um, and um, but my idea behind God is always how big. much of a presence does He have? Is what I'm saying. Very little. Okay. Um, my my thought process of God is basically space, right. outer space. He's he's uh, he's the god of the gaps. The, the 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 laws of physics is him. You know that kind of stuff. Okay. Right, right. Yeah, that's sort of the idea. Like I like I like the idea of space as a paradox, where everything exists within it, but nothing can directly exist within it. Mm-hmm. Like you can't go out into space without exploding. Right. Um, but uh, yet all these celestial bodies exist within. Right. Everything is within this space. And so my only problem with God is sort of that almost this ontological sort of discussion of uh, an omnipotent, all, an all-powerful, all-knowing being would have no reason to do anything whatsoever right. uh, because it knows the outcome. Right. And so well, that's always uh, you know the the big um, paradox at the at the heart of any god of God you know that's all-powerful. Right. Right. To me, that's the thing. To me, like the Greek gods make more sense because so so were, like if so like if say like a priest in the going into the seminary said he got the call from God. Do you think he got a call from God, or do you think he just you know his heart led him there? I think that's probably his heart led okay. him there. I mean, that's like, that's how I know, feel about uh, choice in the stand. Is is that okay. yes? There there's a there's a God in this. There's a positive precedence in this and I I was kind of being too short when I said I was an atheist my real belief is that I'm a post theist which is Mm. basically you're you're an agnostic but you don't think that you know there should be a difference if there's a god or not Um, it's up to us now Um, but I I think yeah I think they had a choice I don't think they were ever going to choose any different but there's still that Mm. choice they still made choices day to day that got them there they still met people and did things day to day that led them to that yeah there was a big big push from god and mother abigail at the beginning to to get them on their path they didn't have any more dreams once they got to boulder 
They didn't have any, no, anybody else true. saying, okay, this is what you do next. They had to figure that shit out right. on their own, mostly until Mother Abigail came mostly. back, but we'll get to that later. You'll we'll get to that, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, there's something there's something very troubling and about maybe all that. Maybe it's just but, my um, personal preference, but I, I can't wrap my head around a story where the characters don't have a choice to do what they do. Mm. I don't agree with that kind of storytelling, personally, and I just can't wrap my head around right. it. Right. I mean, I'd rather I'd rather believe that they have a right. choice, but I just feel like that the the deck the deck is, seems sort of stacked, very stacked, in that, very stacked in that respect. Like, but that, who's that but who's stacking the, what in the deck? Because you know, Flag kind of let this thing loose. Well, I mean, we're gonna you we're know? gonna talk about the uh, what I think is absolutely a really terrible ending anyway right. uh, to this whole story. And that's something but I'm I've just got talking about it, like even in the first, in notes for three and even four. in the first two parts, yeah. you know, who, who's stacking the deck where? Because, like you said, you know, the crows outside that that facility where the thing was first met. Right. Obviously, God isn't the the person who put the kind of things into men's hearts that made them create this bug in the first place. Are we sure about that? Th- We're talking about an Old Testament God. If it was that, no that that killed everybody with a flag. That was that was in man, the Bible. That was flag all the way through. In my opinion, because I think, think, you know, in this story and, you know, and maybe in general, you know, flag is the uh, the baser natures of man, uh, the the worst, the worst inclinations of man. And they don't really make any bones about it that, you know, this was caused by man's hubris, man's hate, man's greed. And those aren't really the providences of God. You know, in this story. See, I think, but the thing is, I think that I think the God of Stephen King is a is a dick. Well, I mean, and uh, and I so I always read this to a degree, especially in the book, was that this was the new flood. Yeah, this was this was Noah's I mean, ark. This was this was God being okay, like, okay, okay, uh, maybe disease is going to wipe out everybody, and what's left has to deal with it. How and about here's, and the entire point of the exercise right. is to see what side. They'll How about choose. this? How about this? And my wife pointed this out when we were watching it together, and I hadn't really picked up on it before. Um, yeah, this is the story of Job. God sure. and Flag okay. are fucking having a bet. <laughs> okay, and they both have a little bit of a hand to play in like setting this ball rolling. Uh-huh. So maybe maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Maybe we're we're both a little bit off base on it. You know, maybe I, I actually yeah I would accept I would accept a, a Job allegory right. here as well. Um, yeah, that you know, the war, I'm going to make the worst possible thing happen and see what right. what these these decent people. Will but the do. parts of their but the uh, parts of men's hearts that you know led to the creation of this thing are are the parts of that's hearts that you know Randall Flag is going after is basically my point. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, and and to if there is such a thing as a choice in this right. story, which I'm still not entirely convinced right. there is, that the, um, I mean, like obviously, I, I think we know the answer out of the two options available. Right. What what side we'd end up on? Right, right. Like we're going, we're going to Oklahoma. Yeah. Well, we're going to Colorado. Right. We're we're, uh, weed we're is not hanging out in Flag. <laughs> right, we're not gonna go. Yeah, we're not gonna go hang out at Flag's place. Right. Um, but I mean, I also feel like, and again, we'll talk about this when we get right. to part three. Uh, that I would probably not go, want to go with either, yeah, but yeah. Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, let's talk about um, let's talk about some of the other cast members here. Uh, we're running a half a time, but we're going to go longer yeah. because this is such a big. Yeah, big we might piece. go like what like another half hour, maybe an hour and a half each. Yeah, I was yeah, yeah I was going to say probably roughly about maybe an hour and twenty minutes per right. episode. 
Um, so we've got a, we got mm, 25 minutes left, maybe. Um, is there anybody in this film, and again, I don't want to necessarily go into a, a negative space, but is there anybody in this movie you think is miscast? Um, I mean, the the people in this movie, that this TV miniseries, that are really um, out of their depths as far as like the other actors around them are are the are the mm. two biggest names at the time, Rob Lowe and uh, Molly Molly Ringwald. I think everybody yeah. all around them is acting circles around them, and well, think so. Well. Oh. More so Molly Ringwald, but that could be partially because she has yeah. less to do. Um, right. But Rob Lowe, in a lot of the spots, I kept noticing places where he forgets to look at the other actors when they're talking to him. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely true. And he's deaf in uh, one but, ear, but, so he should at least, you know, kind of have a start yeah. to that. Um, yeah. And that's that's kind of a cinema sins kind of nonsense, but it... it yeah. Putting putting yeah, Rob Lowe us, but... and Molly Ringwald up against so many great, you know, damn amazing character actors right. really shows, you know, not that they're bad actors, but that they're maybe not the right fit for this movie. Hmm. Um, okay. I think everybody does great in it. I mean, I don't I don't yeah, dislike yeah. a performance. I may dislike some characters. Um, I may dislike right. choices here and there. Um. Sure. I feel bad that uh you know the guy from Coach has to play the big the big dumb pillock again, um, yeah. and then it goes on to play you know Patrick in SpongeBob. But yeah. <laughs> talk about yeah. being typecast, but he's he's amazing in this. I think he's excellent watch, in this. He's next time you guys excellent. watch this, yeah. watch his performance. Don't just focus in on his his way of talking or the way he you know ends everything with his catchphrase. Um, Watch yeah. what's going on behind his eyes because there is a lot of emotion in that performance. There's a lot of stuff going on there that you may not catch. Yeah. You're just thinking, oh, it's the guy who says M-O-O-N. That spells, you know, catchphrase, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely It's right. a moving uh, performance. Uh, and, you know, it's a very moving it, performance. It, and, again, this goes back into the kind of dated nature of the novel and, you know, the, the time. The way that he and Nick were handled were maybe not the most delicate. Um, even if their hearts were in the right place, there's, you know, sure. it's, it's hard to say, <laughs> but I think his performance sure. is, is underrated in this. Yeah. I agree. I agree. He's, uh, there's a lot going on with that performance that, uh, is, is definitely not necessarily on the surface. Right. It's very veiled, uh, to showcase that there's a lot more intelligence that to that character than is readily right. apparent. And it, it helps to sell um, later when, you know, we talk about, you know, God's Tom. Um, right, it's right. not as much of a jump to when they you know hypnotize him and he talks normal and he understands things because it's obvious there's something more behind his eyes that's maybe being blocked somehow in his normal yeah. life. Yeah. Well, even even this scene when he meets uh, right. Nick and Nick is trying to get him to understand that Nick can't right. talk, that Nick can't hear. Uh, Tom doesn't get it and he's a little frustrated. And then there's just that that one moment. It's like half. Yeah, he has that house he uh, just, house MD moment where he puts everything together. You know. He stare. He stares off into space right. for a minute, and it sudden and like completely freezes. Right. And then he says, "Oh, I got right. it." Uh, you know, like there's that idea that somehow Tom has these almost preternatural uh, moments right. of brilliance, and, where he suddenly will understand and it also, something that he's not. It also able helps. To it also helps the audience understand his character because we all had moments where that where somebody's talking to us, 
and we're in the wrong frame of mind. We're not thinking about it from the right angle, and we have to take a minute and go, right? What do you? What do you? Oh, I get it now. I see what you're asking me. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. You know? Right. 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 Yeah, uh, but to, to your point about uh, Rob Lowe not being occasionally <laughs> forgetting, it's one of my favorite bits, actually. Mm-hmm. It, it's at the end, very end of part two. Uh, Mother Abigail's talking about telling her story about oh. <laughs> leave her home. I wrote that and down, he's too. Looking, yeah. He's not looking at her at all. He's not. And so I'm like, I, the way I look at the scene, when I when I kind of do my right. riffing thing yeah. with it, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I ain't listen to what just right. saying. Like, he just doesn't want to hear I, it, so he's just gonna look. Yeah, I, I kept on filling it in with like her saying, you know, shit about him that like he wouldn't want to hear. Right, you know, yeah, he wouldn't want to. Oh, know, this hawk, yeah. you don't even want to listen but, to me right now. Okay, and then I love, I love kick too, your that ass off my porch. Jumped, that scene immediately jumps to. Apparently, they're all waiting in the yeah. <laughs> while this is going on. Like she's having this this speech, and, then, and apparently she's like, "Well, Ralph's awaiting." <laughs> that she means he's literally in the car. yeah. They put her up in the <laughs> rocking chair like she's Granny <laughs> from the- from Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, <laughs> Jen and I both screamed Jed for about five minutes when they put her in the in the rocking chair. Jed. Yeah, yeah. But there's so uh, that scene, of course, is very emotional. Yeah. That. There's a great, uh, great score. Yeah. That really does work a lot with that as well. Um, what do you got? Uh, what who's that, your favorite part from Para One and Two, other than you know Stu, the lead? Uh, well, uh, I'm sorry. What uh, my favorite? Yeah, character? yeah. Who do you who do you think? Uh... Oh, who do I think is miscast? Yeah, who do you think is miscast? Or who do you think is Molly Ringwald. well cast? Molly Ringwald is right. miscast. Um, again, I don't, wouldn't say anything negative about the performance, um, but, uh, having read the book before, uh, first of all, Molly Ringwood, I think is a little bit too old to be playing. Yeah. She's supposed to be like 18, 19, uh, spoiled girl from a gunk. And they didn't really, they didn't Uh, really make her character any older when they cast her. They didn't, you know, add a little bit more experience to her. She's still like 18 or so in the, in the, in the book movie she's supposed right. to be yeah seems to be i mean she she does have that one crack with harold of like maybe you'll find somebody to go with to the ingmar bergman so, right. festival which i'm like which i'm like that's the best date ever like what the hell uh, i don't know about that. um not a huge i'm not fan, a huge uh, bergman fan but you know oh no good god <laughs> how are you how are you <laughs> i didn't say um, i didn't appreciate it but, i just said i'm not a not although, although I mean, although I certainly would not be the asshole who would then say, "But I find cries in right. especially moving." Yeah. Uh, but uh, I like his more like much like David Lynch. I like his more fucking right. stuff. Bergman, but but that's not exactly you know where you where you want to take your your girl on a first date either, unless you know she's uh, into the that. The right, the right girl. I mean, like. Laurie would if there was an Ingmar Bergman film festival, like Laurie would, would go with me right. in a second. We'd be like, yeah, let's do that. But um, but yeah, you, no, you you wouldn't ask your your the girl you've had a crush on in high school to go to an Ingmar Bergman right. show. Uh, in fact, if you had any brains, it probably would have been like, hey, there's an REM concert right, right. in Portland. Like, let's go to yeah. that. Um, but you know, REM being uh, a thing in '94. Um, uh, but. Uh, but yeah, I, mean, I think that she's a little bit miscast. I think that there's, and I don't think, and I think you're right. Much like most of the female roles in this particular film, there's not a lot for them right. to do. A lot, uh, and there's not a lot for Fran to do in the book right. either. Fran's kind of just there for the most part. Although there is that in the unabridged version, there's that big like action sequence with the um, uh, bicycle gang, right? Right, the the slave traders. 
Oh yeah, I forgot and, about that. Uh, she's yeah. helpful. She's helpful. She's helpful there. I think like everybody takes up right. arms and, and actually helps out. And that's but... part of the problem. Like you know, they had even at a four-part miniseries, they had to cut so much out of this book that everybody gets a little less to do. Everybody gets a little less flesh on yeah. the bones, and it's yeah. going to be the characters that started off at the least that end up with the least. You know, right, um, right, right. And right. unfortunately, that was but a lot I mean, of female I, I characters. Think... You know, that got hit the hardest on that. If I wanted to talk about. Um... I think my my probably my favorite cat. I like Rob Lowe mm-hmm. in this role. Um, although you're right, there's absolutely some moments where he kind of seems to forget what he's doing. Right. Um, but I mean, like one of my one of the scenes in this particular in part one that it has always stuck with me was when he's forced to kill uh, Ray, the town bad right. boy, in show in Show You Arkansas, and he has that wonderful moment where he shoots him. He looks up and he's just helplessly. He just goes. Yeah. Like, you know, you can't, he doesn't, he can't speak. So, but he, all he can do is just this sort of guttural scream, pain scream. And it, to me, it's always stuck with me that particular moment. And I think that's what Rob Lowe brings to this role is there's so much compassion there. And And so much kindness. Yeah, I didn't mean to, you know, say that he's terrible in this. And there's a lot of compassion and kindness in this. I just, I don't know. It's not who I would have picked for the role. I'm not sure who I would have, but. Well, in the commentary, they talked about Rob Lowe was originally wanted Underwood, for right? Underwood, yeah, yeah. and uh, and they chose him for uh, Nick Andrews instead to right. to challenge him a little bit, I guess, to be like, let's have him play somebody different than what he would normally play. Right, and yeah, they probably had to sell um, that to the executives because like, you want Rob Lowe and he's not allowed to talk or anything. Talk, what are you? Yeah. What are you yeah. high? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but I mean, I would say besides uh, obviously um, uh, uh, Gary Sinise. Mm-hmm. And Ray Walston, who will will obviously definitely get into more in uh, right. part two, I think, because his most powerful scenes are in part three right. and four. Yeah, he barely he barely um, even shows up until the, near the end of part in, two. Yeah, mid mid right. part two, he's he, he Stu meets him. But um, uh, I want to talk about Adam Stork yeah. as as Larry Underwood. Um, I think he's great as Larry Underwood, um, and plays the I think he really does play the internal it doesn't get played up as much right. in the mini like you said like everybody has less to do right. here because of the nature of the right. beast because it's a mini series but because um, I know Larry's arc in stand, the stand is like another book just like what we were talking a little bit about mm-hmm. it where every single time I think I read it I gra- I sort of gravitate towards a, a different right. character each time of who I relate to. And Larry was one that I remember one of the last times I read it that I really started really kind of feeling Larry. Uh, like really started I, I've never really clicked with him, so I might have to ch- check that out next time I read the book. Well, it's the um, it's the selfish douchebag who suddenly realizes right. that he's wa- he's wasted his yeah, life. Yeah. Uh, uh, and of course, there's the tragedy of you know big success comes right as I mean, the world right. ends. But it wasn't even. Um, it, I don't even know. I. I I feel like if if the world had it ended, he would have been a one hit wonder. First of all, um, yeah, I don't think he was. Yeah, I don't think they he make was it obvious that it wasn't. Success. You know, his success wasn't really necessarily his success or at what he was meant sure. to be doing. Um, sure. As awful, awful as as the as the line was, lines were, you sound black, and yeah, that uh, brown, yeah, brown sound, goes brown around. sound, do do get around, um, yeah. Wow, that just ugh. Anyway, but it's 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 wrote, true because he's, he's doing you know he's 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 trying to do soul music. He's trying to you know appropriate that, yeah. 
to to make something yeah. of himself. So I I don't know. It does suck that, that yeah he gets actually. his 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 hit single and then all of a sudden the world ends. Yeah. Well, I wrote down in my notes when I was uh, particularly when I was noticing how white all right. this was. I wrote I wrote down that brown sound sure do get around. But nothing. <laughs> um, no, no. Uh, you know, yeah, there's not a lot of not a lot of black people around. Um, so which is which is sad because you know the two best actors in this whole thing are Ozzy Davis and Ruby D. Yeah, and Ruby yeah. D. And yeah. they give Ruby D a lot to do, um, but it's not exactly yeah. a nuanced character. No, uh, well, I a mean, little bit yeah, to a degree. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that I think Ruby D's performance is really quite fantastic. Oh, absolutely. Um, and a very moving character, I think. Even if it's manipulative, right. I think it's, she's a very moving character. Um, and I think, but she's equal I mean, equal I parts I mean, well, manipulative and manipulated because I mean, you know, she's the direct contact for God, basically. Oh, I, I mean manipulative in terms of emotion. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, I gotcha. Within the within the story. Oh, okay, I thought you meant she was manipulating uh, she, people it, around her, which she kind of is, but you know, she's right, talking right. for well, someone no, else. What I mean is. Yeah, what I mean is like she's manipulative in the sense of like she enforces a certain level of of uh, sympathy and and from the audience. Right. Like it, it's it, it like she's so virtuous, right? And so kindly and old and sweet, right. and and that we don't have a choice but to right. like her, and we don't really need to understand her to like and, her. And of a of a, of a story do. that's filled with so many you know archetypes. I don't want to say tropes because that you know makes it sound worse than it is but you know all these right. characters are their own little archetypes and she might be the most archetypical of them all other than a flag yes um yeah there's not really a whole lot more to her as a character than what she's you know doing for the plot and what she represents for the plot um, right. you never really get a sense of like you know if this wasn't happening if this wasn't the end of the world you know what kind of conversation would she have at the grocery store <laughs> you know right right that kind of thing well, I mean, I think we can guess that, but it would just be like, you know, <laughs> right? God. Yeah, you maybe. Know? Uh, you know, yeah, but um, I mean, we certainly don't get the impression that the God thing is right. Even, like, you know, I guess I suppose it could be. We don't really know much too much about the background. No, I, I feel like but she was maybe, always a, a godly woman. You know, maybe. Yeah. As she got older, her correct her connection grew stronger, especially after you know, in the book they they talk about how her whole family is dead or moved away. They've lost bits after bits of yeah. their farm over the years to the banks, you know, this, that, right. and the other. So, much like how she goes, you know, on her wilderness retreat at the end, you know, she's been living her whole yeah. life stripping more and more away from her, her worldly self until all that's yeah. left really is her conduit to the higher power. Right. At least that's how I right. came at the character, right? You know? Sure, sure. But she still bakes uh, her own bread, yeah. so... Props to her. I can't do that. It's 106 years old. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love the uh, uh, probably the only the only real moment I think that really truly humanizes Mother Abigail in a, in a very realistic mm-hmm. way is she comes out of the outhouse. Oh, <laughs> in one scene, and she's like, "Thank you, Lord. The prunes did yeah. the trick." And I'm like, "That's that's there's, pleasant." But I'm there's like, quite hey, a few okay, of them. Shits, I think you know? um, she does show, you know, actual delight and happiness and. Um, yeah. In the second half, she shows some second guessing and, you know, kind of, yes, con- yeah. you know, questioning herself. I mean, her, yeah. the best of the dreams, I think, was the one with Nick. Because um, he, yeah. and it's a little cheesy yeah. in the way it's done, but, you know, I can hear, I can talk. Yeah, I can she's talk. like, she's yeah. delighted. She's like, yes, Nick, yeah. you can. <laughs> you know? yeah. And she's yeah. not, she's not 
that could come off as patronizing really easily. And yeah. no, it's like you grab, like you're showing your grandma, you can do a backflip and she's just happy, happy as the world. Yeah. Happy yeah. That you can do it. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, back to like, back to Larry. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's, that's actually uh, really works for him, uh, particularly as a character, it's not in the movie, but there's the whole, he breaks everything he touches, like right. he destroys every relationship he's ever they been They kind of shorthanded uh, that he, a little bit when he went to see his mother in part one. They kind of, you, yeah, got, yeah, his mother, yeah, you he's got what you need like, to know, you know about him uh, as a person I, from that. Right, right. I'm, I'm only here, I'm not here to visit you because I love you, Ma. I'm here to visit you because I'm hiding out from loan sharks. And I don't... You know, and and uh, the way his mother plays it is great too because you instantly understand why he turned out the way he did. Um, yeah. Maybe not as much of a you know a user of other people, but I mean his mother tears him down immediately, without hesitation. Well, I think she's calling she's calling out what a, kind of a, what a prick he is. But I it's think. not. It's, I think that it, there's it's some, done with. There's love there, but there's disappointment. I don't know. I didn't catch a whole lot of love at first. Um, no. There's a lot of disappointment. No, no. Uh, there's a lot of. It seems like she resents him a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. So growing up that because I don't feel like she was a particularly warm woman. Um, so he had to. No, maybe you might be right. I don't know. I. But, but I remember he had the in the line the book uh, one of the Stephen King mantra mm-hmm. lines that you ain't no nice right, guy. Right, right, yeah. And that kept coming up in, right. in him and the idea that he uh, undergoes that growth. Right. It's also in the book of memories. So he has his own little entourage by the end of yes. By the time he gets to Boulder, yeah. versus in this where he doesn't, and, he's been a solo agent the whole yeah, time. Yeah, we were talking, you know, about how everybody got stuff trimmed away from their parts, and I think out of yeah. all of them, maybe Larry is the least served by that because there's a jump between douchebag Larry and good guy Larry yeah. that is never really seen on screen. No, no, in it fact, just happens yeah, between you, episodes. We see him with, yeah, we see him. We see him with Lucy meeting Lucy and Joe. I think at the end of part right. two. And when we jump to part three, he's already in right. Boulder. Like we don't see what trials and tribulations he went through as he as he moved across right. the country. But we skipped over um, like the entire character turn from you know, re- basically realizing you know that his selfish ways are what's holding him back, and you know, yeah. becoming the good guy. And right, he becomes, and it also makes sense. Again, we'll we'll talk about the Boulder Free Zone uh, next time, but like why he's in that list in, in general. Right. Uh, and why, uh, when they're when they're asked to, when people are asked to vote on this particular group, why Larry's name is on there, and why people have no problem voting for Larry, right. um, because in the book he was the leader. Right. He had a group of like fifteen people that he brought with yeah. him that respected him and that he and he you know, cared about protected, him. He protected them and he him, yeah. led them. Yeah, and he learned to yeah he learned to love them. He learned to love you know Lucy. He right. learned to love this kid, right. um, which was all out of character for Larry, who had never loved anything but Larry. Right. Oh yeah, you mentioned the kid. I mean, that's a good thing, you know, because like the first time you see him with that kid, he you know wants to just put him down basically, <laughs> and then all of a sudden yeah, right. he's like, "This is my took, kid you now." Took him with you anyway. Yeah, yeah. You know, she, well, he was practically fair, and you took him with him. Right. You took him with you anyway. Yeah, that was such a like. And she, dick she looks at him like, "Well, yes. he would die." <laughs> like, well, I mean, yeah, he would have died otherwise, and he's like, "Okay." Right? But like, yeah, the idea that Larry probably would have met a feral child during this and would have left him right. behind. Would have been like I can't. I'm not yeah, he he wouldn't have harmed him. I don't think, but he would definitely have ran the other way and said, "Good luck, buddy." Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't want. I don't want to do right. that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think that's. We should start wrapping right. up for part one here. Part one is wrapping. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
So yeah, again, we're doing uh, just this part one and part two. Then we'll be doing um, part three and part four. Mm-hmm. That'll be our next episode. Um, so uh, final thoughts on um, part, part one, and, one two. and two. I think are are just great TV filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I mean, it's obviously they can't stand alone, but I think more so than parts three and parts four. I think these could stand more on their own um, as as little movies, especially part one. I agree, um, especially part one. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a solid work, and this is you know, I think this was the point in my life where I realized that TV miniseries could be cool and and really well done yeah. and interesting, yeah. and not just like you know, I don't know, longer versions of soap operas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although there's plenty of soap oh, operas yeah, I mean, too, but it was '94. Right. What do you want? You know television on 94 had a kick in soundtrack uh, 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 you know don't fear the reaper and yeah. uh, don't dream it's yeah. over we're both great hits don't dream it's over yep yeah uh they they said in the commentary that uh, instead of don't dream it's over it was supposed to be the beach boys uh fun in the sun uh, i don't know if that would work as well it would not have worked as well that's why mick garris right. changed it apparently but king king wanted it to be uh fun 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 in the summer you and, know, and, and king and was, was king like, wanted it to be maybe something that he remembered from his younger days and I think it was smart to update that to something that you know people my age would be like oh I remember that song from five ten years ago you know well and I think that's something we'll, we'll I think we'll talk about when we talk about in our second right. part too is I think the difference of opinion and whether or not this story is um, updated or not uh, optimistic or nihilistic uh, because I think the king it's a something of a nihilistic the short story. answer so is Garris, yes both <laughs> yeah and I think and I think right. Garris sees it as a very positive one um, but uh, but yeah, I guess that wraps us up. You want to do the outro? Sure. Then we'll see you back in uh, one week for part two. Um, as always, I am Nathaniel Johnson, and he is Samuel Numine. Oh, no, right. yeah, we're switching oh. it up now. I don't know. I started I started right. to outro you, but myself. So whatever. <laughs> Anyways, uh, you guys right. want to keep positive, keep it constructive, mm-hmm. do it with love. We love you guys. Please come back for part two. Absolutely. Love yourselves and love your horror. Uh, thank you very much and have a great night. Namaste. Dancing with the devil. Oh, the devil. Dancing at the devil.